Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. I'm Allison Langer, and this is Writing Class Radio, where you'll hear true personal stories and learn a little bit about how to write your own stories. I'm Andrea Askowitz. Together, we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. By art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shit. There's no place in the world like writing class, and we want to bring you in. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Welcome to 2020. Allison and I are here in the studio together. Yes, Andrea came all the way back from Madrid to report this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I did. Um, Okay, today on our show, we're talking to Susan Shapiro about literary citizenship. Okay, what is that? A literary citizen is someone who does good things for other literary people, like retweet your published essays, share insider do's and don'ts, and hook you up with editors. Susan Shapiro has made a career out of doing all of these things and much more. She's written 12 books, a 1,000 essays, and she teaches at NYU and the New School. Before we get into our conversation, we want to share an essay by Susan Shapiro that was published in 2016 in The Cut, which is in New York Magazine. We love this essay, and it's about literary citizenship in a weird way. Susan actually asked one of us to read her story because she gets a sore throat when she reads. So here's Allison reading Susan Shapiro's essay called The Line Between Professor and Predator Isn't Always So Clear. Are you okay? I asked my 22-year-old smart, pretty student, Debbie, last spring during office hours. She often had questions about class or the ambitious book she was working on, but tonight she'd rushed over, still in a mini dress, high heels, heavy eyeliner, and lipstick, upset about a bad experience she'd just had with a famous older novelist now teaching at my alma mater, who she'd befriended on Facebook. What happened? I asked, worried. She nervously combed her long, dark hair behind her ears. He wanted me to be his date for this fancy award ceremony tonight. I was excited, got all dressed up. It was fun. But then he asked me to go home with him. Gross. I said, no way. What did he do? Nothing. I got the hell out of there. It was creepy. There was another girl he was flirting with. All the harassment, sexual assault, roofie, and rape cases in college across the country were not distant news. Many of my students had shared similar sordid encounters, which scared me. I'd sent several distraught women to school authorities, to the police to report crimes, to therapists, and to editors who'd published their stories. Because I was a female professor and an outspoken women's rights advocate who championed Debbie's work, I knew she wanted me to be angry on her behalf, toe the conventional feminist line, take her side, see her as an innocent victim, and call the guy a harasser. Or worse... Yet this time I couldn't. I'm confused, I said. Why go on a date if you weren't attracted to him? I admire his writing, and I hoped he'd blurb my book, she admitted. But that doesn't mean I was going to bed with him. Of course not, I told her. Yet his proposition, and taking no for an answer, sounds fair. We don't have to vilify every man on the planet with a functioning libido. Wow, she said. 
You're taking this so personally. She was right. It wasn't her actions that troubled me. I feared I'd done what I was accusing Debbie of doing when I was her age. She didn't know that I'd had an affair with an older professor and tried to make him the villain. The truth turned out to be more complex. Decades earlier, as an overeager graduate student in Manhattan, I dressed up for orientation, excited to introduce myself to the head of my program, a brilliant, acclaimed author. It's such an honor to meet you, I said, shaking his hand. Planning to finish your PhD by the end of the mixer, he quipped. He must have seen my application and knew that I was only 20, having skipped two grades. Why? Are you threatened by fast women? I'd asked, not catching my double entendre. He was about twice my age and academically dashing in his beige jacket and corduroys. I'd admired his dark, hilarious books, which seemed like Philip Roth put to poetry. I was a tall, thin-skinned Michigan girl with a big mouth, a big appetite, and big feet. Although my conservative parents didn't know what a master's in creative writing was, they'd reluctantly let me sell my orange cutlass to help fund three terms in the big city. The minute I got to Greenwich Village, I never wanted to leave. I dreamed of becoming a famous author with bylines and magazines and books, just like my professor. Showing up to his every office hour, I'd hand him stacks of poems I'd been revising until four in the morning. Just one, he'd say, then unleash his full throaty laugh. I morphed into a downtown New Yorker. I lost weight, donned thick black eyeliner, low-cut tight black clothes, and spiked black boots. My professor noticed. I could tell. At a holiday party at his apartment, he stood close to me, pointed to my heels, and joked, You're trying to tower over me. I removed them to help clean up afterward. Then we sat on the wooden floor of his dusty one bedroom, drinking cheap Chardonnay from paper cups, me barefoot, chattering anxiously. You talk too much, too loud, too quickly, he cut me off. Noticing me blush, he said, don't be nervous. We're not having an affair or anything. I wondered if I wanted to. Did he ever think of me outside of class the way I thought of him? From his work, I knew he was single, straight, and lonely. I wasn't sure if the spark I'd felt between us was my imagination. Will you look at my latest rewrite, I begged, taking a revised poem from my purse. He pulled out a pen and marked my page with squiggles and arrows. You have too many words, not enough music. I loved how honestly he critiqued me, our intellectual and erotic energy entangling. I think I'm falling for you, I blurted out, avoiding his eyes. He cracked up. Humiliated, I couldn't hold back my tears. I'm sorry, his voice grew softer. It's just that everybody falls for the person who fixes their work. That's not why, I insisted. Listen, I would never date a student, he said. I was crushed, until he added, if only I weren't your teacher. Hope. After that, he invited me to book events, introducing me to his colleagues as a talented newcomer, elevating me socially and creatively. Having his ear and his eyes on my work felt magical, mystical, enthralling. I was honored when he asked what I thought of his first drafts, thrilled when he took my suggestions to retitle a poem. Before I completed my degree, he recommended me for a coveted position at The New Yorker, which I took, finishing my thesis by night. I told myself I'd landed the full-time gig because I'd aced their editorial test and hit it off with my fascinating female boss, who'd been there since World War II. But without my professor's referral, I may have landed next to my classmate as an assistant at Soap Opera Digest. That May, I graduated and decided to stay in New York. 
Released from the confines of academia, my former professor took me to dinner. At a local Chinese dive, he told me how beautiful I was. Finally, we kissed. Our connection intensified. It was awkward and scary, but switching from protege to girlfriend made me feel special. His crowd embraced me. Friends my age were a little skeptical, perhaps because I disappeared into his much more intellectually stimulating world. He was the oldest, wisest man I'd ever dated. He said I was the only student he'd ever touched, and I believed him. Yet the fantasy of having my professor fall for me was more exhilarating than the reality. With our feelings for each other no longer illicit, I found I was more comfortable in his classroom than his bedroom. Hearing him fetch about his lower back pain and receding hair was a turnoff. He didn't like that the job he'd found me became my priority. He rolled his eyes when I exalted Gloria Steinem and analyzed different ways of feminism. I tired of him correcting my grammar and making fun of me when I read tabloids or watched TV talk shows. I nicknamed him Henry Higgins. He called my new short haircut too butch. You're too controlling, I argued. I'd once imagined us as Elizabeth Barrett and Robert Browning. We were closer to Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. I started smoking, toking, and drinking, all of which bothered him. He recommended I see a therapist. I refused, insisting he'd been on the couch so long I got analyzed by osmosis. Rushing home from a meeting one day, he announced that he'd been awarded a one-year fellowship in Israel and wanted me to accompany him. Although I was flattered, I couldn't afford it, I confessed. I'll pay for everything. I already have a job that you got me. I can't gallivant around as an appendage to a boyfriend. He said we can get married. Two female students I knew had wed their former professors. Yet I felt rushed and overwhelmed. I wasn't sure I even wanted to get married or whether I was in love with him or the idea of him. Rather than take vows so young, I was yearning more for a mentor, a father figure. I'm nowhere near ready for this, I told him honestly. Wounded by my cold response, he took off, refusing to return my calls. He was mortified. While I put the brakes on a serious commitment, I hadn't meant to end everything. I was confused. If he saw me in our shared neighborhood, he'd rush to cross the street. I felt guilty and grief-stricken, yet completely ghosting me, not even returning a phone call, seemed cruel. Wasn't he supposed to be the mature one? I'd never felt more alone or vulnerable. Breakups were bad enough but I was afraid this split would exile me from my newfound colleagues and the literati crowd. Indeed, when I later became a teacher, two students reported that he'd badmouthed me, telling them not to take my class, claiming I had no idea what I was talking about. I couldn't believe he'd publicly maligned me. I felt powerless and persecuted by an angry ex who could ruin my reputation. Freaked out, I finally did call a shrink. He reassured me that nobody would take his word over mine at this point. Then she asked what had originally drawn me to my professor. I said, he had this great apartment overstuffed with books and brilliant writer friends and smart editors publishing his work. So you didn't want to marry him. You wanted to be him, she asked. I nodded yes, awed by the distinction. Amid debates of older men harassing, seducing, and manipulating female students and subordinates, it was tempting to see myself as the innocent prey, an injured party, another young, impressionable protege, manipulated by a powerful man. Yet as easy as that narrative would be on my ego, it wouldn't be psychologically accurate. I realized this after my husband, a scriptwriter, spoke to my writing class about TV and film. 
The next day, an envelope came from one of my undergrads. Assuming she dropped off a late assignment, I opened it, taken aback to find her sexy headshots, body shots, and a note to my husband about how brilliant his talk had been and how she'd love to buy him a beer to discuss career options in, quote, our biz. She just wants me to help her get a job on Saturday Night Live, he tried to reassure me. She was sharp and talented, yet from the vantage point of being her writing professor and his wife, it seemed to me she was blatantly flaunting her sexuality to further her career. It reminded me of the way my student Debbie had posted half-naked pictures of herself on social media, probably what had lured the acclaimed novelist. She felt I was being prudish. I thought I was being protective. I wasn't always so conservative, of course. We each harness whatever power we have to get ahead, whether overtly or subconsciously. I'd once been a hot 22-year-old using my looks to fuel my ambition. Yet here I was, wishing my students would hold their own in this cliched, coquettish world while I hadn't been honest either. I suddenly saw how I'd deceived myself years earlier. If my professor was drawn to my youth and beauty, I'd been enticed by his experience and status, which I wound up usurping. It was a trade-off I'd chosen, a barter that launched me, benefited me most in the long run. Seeing him at a crowded soiree not long ago, our eyes met. I went over to say hello. He pretended not to remember who I was, turning away as I approached. I was shocked. Then I wondered if he'd intentionally shunned me because he was still angry. I was actually flattered to think I could elicit so much emotion after all these years. Had he spoken to me that night, I would have thanked him. He had, after all, improved my life teaching me to be an incisive reader and critic. He'd helped me land an awesome first job in the city. He'd inspired me to write books and teach, demystifying the process. I might have even apologized. Not sure if I'd been immature back then or just a typically self-involved single player in my 20s. Now, after two decades in a happy union, I've learned I can be a feminist who loves men and marriage. This involves not lumping all men into the enemy camp or labeling someone sexist or predatory just because they express desire. In retrospect, my professor was not a Svengali seducing an innocent rube or a skirt chaser abusing his position like other infamous men in the news. I was never victimized. He was a gentleman who'd postponed our romance until I was no longer in his class. I'd been a consenting adult who'd actually initiated the relationship I'd wanted him, went for him, got him, and his connections. When he'd pushed for more, I set the limits I needed to, and not all that gently. Then I published a book telling my side of the story. Ultimately, he might have been more of a victim than I was. We'll be back with commentary and our chat with Susan after the break. We're back. You're listening to Writing Class Radio, and this is Allison Langer. Okay, so I want to talk about Susan's essay. What do you want to talk about? I have a few things to say. I love this story. I want to talk about what it's about. So this professor elevated her socially and elevated her professionally. He recommended her for her first job at The New Yorker. And she comes to realize all that at the end. I want to say this funny thing 
um, I don't know if you know this, but like, so she says we ended up being like Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. Well, Sylvia Plath committed suicide. Does everyone know that? I didn't. And oh. I was like, what do you mean? I, that that was something I kind of missed because I'm not like a literary researcher. Like, I'm not really good with all that so stuff. So that was a really yeah, funny. literary idiot. It's re- <laughs> I thought it was really funny that she compared herself to that couple. Yeah. That's a bummer. So then she's going on about how she wanted, she's telling her therapist, she wanted smart editors to publish her work. She wasn't really in love with him. And she says that she was, she wanted to be him, which I actually think is a really cool realization. But really, she just was in love with the connections he had. And she totally comes out and tells us, which I love that about her. In the end, she realizes she wasn't the young woman who was manipulated by an older man. She takes responsibility for her role in this situation. It was written in 2016, published in 2016. It's so relevant still today because there's so much Me Too. And she's talking about a kind of Me Too situation, but she's putting her own twist on it. She's making it her specific story. And we'll talk about that later. Yay. Thank you for letting us read your story, Susan Shapiro. And now I want to talk about being a literary citizen. I met Susan Shapiro, I don't remember how many years ago, but maybe like five years ago on Binders. And Binders is a subgroup on Facebook. They're called Binders Full of nonfiction writers, Binders Full of memoirists, Binders Full of poets. There's a ton of Binders. And I was on Binders just I, I fish through binders all the time to see what's going on because people are asking questions on there. Like, does anyone know the editor of the girlfriend section of AARP? <laughs> that's, that's true. That's binders full of older women. Yeah. Right. And um, or does anyone have Aaron Carr's email over at Ravishly? Or like I wrote a story about my dog dying. What publication likes dead dog stories? Those are the kinds of questions people post on binders. And Susan Shapiro answers those questions more than anyone else I've ever seen on Binders. And the answers she gives are so thorough and helpful that I one time emailed her and she emailed me back. And since then, we've become friends and colleagues. Um, Susan, since recently published a book called The Byline Bible. And The Byline Bible is excellent. And you can we have a link to it on our website and in our show notes. And it has all of her tips on how to get published, on how to write. It's everything you could would find in binders. It's right there in one book. It's excellent. It might be the best reference book for freelance essayists. It, yeah. it shows you how to write a query letter, what publications want specific stories. It's excellent. I also want to tell you, listener, that if you want to join Binders or any of the Binders, some of them are closed, which means that you need to be invited. Just email me at Andrea at writingclassradio.com or message me on Facebook and I'll invite you. Binders is a great, great resource. And she was so sweet when when you when we sent her the email asking her to be on our show. She was like, sure. Yeah, exactly. She's a yes woman. Okay, cool. We have Susan Shapiro on Writing Class Radio. I'm so excited. Hi. Hi. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. So the purpose of having you on our show is we wanted to talk about what it means to be a literary citizen. And um, I want to talk about, like, who came up with that term and um, what does it mean? So these are all the questions I want to ask you. And why are you such a good literary citizen. 
Okay, well, first I will say that I figured it out early on when I moved to New York and I went to NYU for my um, graduate degree. I had a decent apartment, and so I offered to, I would go to all these great readings with all these poets who I just um, idolized, and I, I offered, it's actually a good story. So we were doing a, at NYU, they would do readings and events and they wanted like a place for a reception because sometimes the readings would be like, it would be like at nine o'clock at night and there weren't NYU um, offices available or, or halls. So I offered one night to have it in my apartment. And so they said, great, after the reading, we're, we're all gonna come over. So I called my mom, nice Jewish mom in Michigan, all excited, all the poets are coming over. So she's like, oh, what are you serving? So I'm like, well, they give us 40 bucks to get cheese and crackers. So So apparently, she called Second Avenue Deli and in Yiddish explained to the guy that all the poor poets were going to come over and there wasn't enough food. So so there were like these amazing trays of coal cuts and salmon and bagels and everything like waiting for me when I came back from the reading. So, of course, I put Jewish it all mom, out. Jewish mom was right. like, cheese and crackers is not going to do. Right, right, right. So the funniest, so everybody, so I became wildly popular with this crowd, you know, but so, but it was interesting because I will say that by early on by going to readings and by offering my apartment and feeding people, I already sort of noticed that they, that's how, that it was cool. Like that's how they love that I came to the events. They love that I was giving my apartment. And I, so I'd go to all these readings and whenever I'd go to a reading, if I could afford it, I would buy the book and I would have the author sign the book. And at the time, I think maybe the strand, there were certain books, uh, you could get used books. Um, so I would do that. And then sometimes I started reviewing books where they'd give you free galleys or free copies. So I realized early on that the, you know the closest the, the the best best way to get to the heart of a poet was to um, you know go to their reading, buy their book, have them sign it. You know, I was already uh, oh by the way, reading their book and reviewing it was like oh my god, you were like that was like an amazing thing. And so very early on, I had a colleague who what I wanted to jump in and say the key to anyone's heart, the keys are food and attention. And love. And also, you know, like with a writer, you know, in fact, I say to my students, one of the things I say in Byline Bible is don't ever, you know, send work to an editor and say, I hope you'll take my great piece on Google them and say, oh, my God, I loved your piece on or you wrote a book or, you know, um, compliment them. But anyway, so so then I started reviewing books and I realized very early on that this was really a fantastic, I, I, I didn't mean it as an entree. I actually just wanted to get paid and I liked doing book reviews. And because I, you know, from school, I was a, um, you know, I could write a short paper, a school paper, and it seemed like a book report. I'd get a free galley and then I'd get a free book and then I'd get invited to the book party or, you know, if I liked the book or the, um, the reading. So I started doing that a lot. And at a certain point, I had my own book column. I reviewed five paperback books a week. It was a newsday, but then actually it ran in the Miami Herald and a lot of other papers. So that was just a really good entree to meeting authors and meeting their agents and meeting their editors and connecting. And I later realized that when I started doing my own books that I had built up all this good karma. And I also, um, I was in the National Book Critics Circle, so every term I would teach my students how to do book reviews and author profiles and Q&As, and we would have an author come in and get copies in advance. And my students just published amazing pieces on the books. And uh, so that's how it started. 
So lately, I feel like the word or term literary citizen is flying around. It's flying around Twitter. I see it on Facebook. People are mentioning that notion. So I asked Susan, who coined the term literary citizen? I'm Jennifer Baker at Electric Literature. And she, of course, has written about a lot of books herself, and she did an anthology. And she was the one who actually from my memory, coined the phrase when people were asking advice about how to get published and how to publish your own books and all that stuff. She said, be a good literary citizen. And she included doing book reviews, going to readings, you know, like like even in social media posts, post other people's work. Because if you just if you're just trying to promote yourself, you come off like, you know, a bore and egomaniacal and like, you don't, you know, you're not paying respect to anybody that came before you. You're not helping anyone else. So I like that term. And I felt like I had sort of learned to do that early on with the book reviewing. Susan told us so much good stuff about how she evolved into the literary citizen she is today. She published her first memoir at 43. No one ages out in the writing world, Yay. which is good news for us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Considering we're a little older than 43. Not much, but a little. And before publishing her memoir, she had started a novel, which took 13 years to get published. Also, yay! yay. <laughs> so that's good news for yeah. you. What, yeah. How long is it taking you to do uh, your memoir? Yeah, I lost count. Many years on my second memoir. Yeah. It's ready to get out there. Can you ask any literary citizens out there to do any help for you? Do you need any help? Yes, I do. I need any introduction to agents that you have. And you're, so if you have an agent that you think would like a funny, poignant memoir about attention and love, please email it Andrea at writingclassradio.com. All right, back to Susan. After I published my own books and I just saw how hard it was and the ups and downs and how many years it took, it became harder for me to write a negative review. I started over-empathizing with the author, especially if the author was female or if they were my age. When I was doing book reviews, I was reading a book and I was using my brain power to figure out exactly what was wrong with the book. And sometimes in a clever way, I was kind of trashing it or I was kind of showing off how smart I was and pinpointing exactly what's wrong with the book. But it got really sad because I realized I'm telling the author what's wrong with the book and they can't fix it because it's already out. And I was getting reviews myself, and I got some mostly very kind reviews, but sometimes I'd get a review and somebody would say something smart, you know, like, why didn't she bring back that character or, you know, something. And I was like, damn, I wish I would have known that earlier. And, and what I realized with teaching, at that point, a lot of my students were doing books. And I was always a good editor for my students, but all of a sudden to use my critical abilities instead of getting paid to trash someone's book after it was out, to, to see it from the first page and to be able to give them criticism and feedback and help them make their book better, all of a sudden I just realized I don't want to review books. I want to help people write books. And I just felt like it was a – so I did do that switch. The biggest problem I have is students and clients come to me with self-published books. And I kind of have a, um, I sort of draw a line that I don't blurb self-published books because what I do, you know, in my second career after writing is I help people break into the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Random House and Little Brown. Sometimes I feel like a lot of people that are self-publishing are not studying writing, they're not revising, they're not using any of the thousand techniques that I offer 
because I actually have found, I'm not saying that everybody who tries to publish a book can, but I do feel like if you've been writing a book for six months and it do, and it's not happening, that doesn't mean go self-publish it. To me, it means you know take a class in the right genre, or can you can you do a writing group? Can you revise it? Can you rethink it? And I feel like the biggest mistakes people make, really, with essays and with books, is you know they're too in a hurry, they get frustrated too quickly, they're not reading what they want to be writing. You know, so I get people that you know here's my memoir about quitting drinking. You know, and I'll mention. The, the last 20 good books about the topic and they look at me like like they don't know what I'm talking about. I'm like, go to the library, Google, you know, like there's, you have to, what's that line? The the harder I work, the luckier I get. I mean, I when I did my first piece for, there was a New York Times column I really wanted to break into and I had a first draft and I um, I read taking my own advice, which, which, which a mentor gave me, I read a hundred pieces that they had already run and I realized my piece was way too light and funny. And so I revised the whole thing. And then I got in the first time I tried, but that was because I spent weeks, you know, doing the, doing the work. Okay, so say you read 100 pieces and then you go write your piece. You know, as I say in Byline Bible, don't decide it's brilliant and send it to the New Yorker at three in the morning. You know, that's not a good idea. You need to get feedback. And feedback isn't your friend who'll say, boy, you're brilliant. You know, you, you need, or your mother, you need somebody really critical who's done it before, you know, and there's a lot of ways to find that. Um, and, and I let people um, can email me at propsu123 at gmail.com if you want me to recommend uh, ghost editors, you could hire somebody, you know, but taking a class is great. Doing a writing workshop is great. You know, there's really a lot of things you could do to make, your, make it easier for yourself. Did you hear what Susan Shapiro just did? She gave thousands of strangers her email address. That's an amazing literary citizen. After NYU, I started my own writing groups, and I would only pick the critics and writers who were really critical. And if someone would just say, that's good, that didn't help me. I wanted tough criticism. And what I realized pretty early on was not only was my work improving, everybody was selling their work everywhere. Like people that were rejected three weeks before were getting into the New York Times and the New Yorker and New York Magazine and Washington Post. And I kind of pretty early on realized I'm just going to need this kind of criticism. Uh, after, after I did it at NYU, I'm just going to need this criticism for my career. So you have to do the work. There's no way around it. We've said it on our podcast before. Get into a writing group and get yourself a tough editor you can trust. You know, I came out of six years of expensive undergrad and graduate school and I didn't even know how to write a cover letter to send out any of the work that I had spent six years perfecting and I definitely had professors and teachers who were very well published who did not share contacts and I found that extremely frustrating so when we started the writing group I definitely tried to be generous and I put out you know cheap wine and popcorn and, you know, I definitely told them my attitude, which is there's so many people that hoard their contacts, you know, and they won't give you an editor's name and they're kind of all selfish. And, 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 and it was my feeling that I didn't want to be like that. And the few people who did help me, like I had one professor who helped me get the magazine job. And then at the magazine job, there was an older woman who I work for who was so kind and she would, she would read my writing and help me proofread it. She was, you know, and I wanted to be like, th- those were my heroes. The other night, I was talking to my brother and sister-in-law about Susan Shapiro because really my brother is the Susan Shapiro of real estate. <laughs> and my sister-in-law said, well, it's not like there's limited room at the top. 
But there is limited room at the top. And still, Susan Shapiro is generous and willing to share that room. Yeah. Aw, thank you, Susan. I want to be like you. All right, before we go, there are two things that Susan said that really hit me. Not necessarily about being a good citizen, but about about being a good writer. So everybody says to me, you have to write about your cancer experience. Well, obviously, I have a personal cancer story, but it's probably not much different than anyone who has gone through cancer. But there has to be a different angle to make it a story somebody wants to read. So this is what Susan says. So I had several students who, when they would hand me their piece about a mother or father dying of cancer, I would say, that's already been done too much. So here's a perfect example. So I had one student who had that problem, and then I asked her a lot of questions, and it turned out that after her mother had died of cancer, she wanted to write about it, but I said to her, let me ask you something, because she's aiming for modern love. Did this affect your relationship with men? So she said, yeah, actually, I was dating a guy, and I think I was trying to rush the relationship to get married so my mother could meet him before she died. I'm like, write that story. And part of the reason why um, I think it's so good to read what's read what's out there is that if you read a story that they've already done, don't do it. I always hear, this is old. This is boring. I've heard this before. Do it new. Can you dig deeper? Is there a weirder twist? You know, you have to find a different way of whether it's funnier or darker or weirder or telling your own story. And I I always say to my students, write the piece that only you can write. And sometimes it takes a while. I mean, I've definitely brought in an essay 20 times before I find its own weirdness, before it's special, before it sparkles. You know, and and by the way, if you don't have good enough critics, then that's your that's your problem. Then you got to get tougher critics in your life who will tell you the truth. And if somebody says this is old, this is tried, I've heard it before, don't give up. Just say, what's the best line? Is there any angle here that interests you? Everyone needs an editor who's willing to say, I'm sorry you have cancer, but your story's boring as shit. (laughs) So funny. Also, read Byline Bible. You have to learn how to write and publish an essay on the topic of your book. That will help you get an agent's attention. And then that will help you publish your book. And I am in that boat right now. I'm totally following the Bible. I'm working on my splashy essay. And then I'm going to send it out there. And I'm really hoping that that attracts the attention of an agent, which then attracts the attention of an editor, which then attracts the attention of the world. Woo! Come on, 2020. Yep. It's going to happen for both of us. Thank you, Susan Shapiro. Susan told us that her classes at the new school are open to the public. If you want in, email prof. S-U-E-123. So that's profsu123 at gmail.com. Or go to her website, susanshapiro.net. And thanks for listening. Writing Class Radio is produced by Virginia Laura, Andrea Askwitz, and me, Allison Langer. Theme music by Christine Corey. Additional music by Emia and Poddington Bear. Writing Class Radio is sponsored by the Launchpad at the University of Miami. There's more writing class on our website, writingclassradio.com, including video classes, stories to study, and editing resources. Contact us at info at writingclassradio.com. If you love this show and enjoy all the extras on our website, share this episode with a friend and then hit the support us button. Check out the writing classes and publishing insights we are giving our Patreon supporters. $10 a month gets you an all-access pass to Andrea's publishing conversations. Which is actually like the cliff notes to the byline Bible. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. 
<laughs> yeah, I didn't think about it like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So 10 bucks a month, that's nothing. And if you do the $25 a month, um, that gets you a writing class a week with me, you get the access pass for free. So it's like a two for one. Anyway, the classes are via Zoom meeting and are for one hour. We'll write to a prompt and share what we wrote. A new episode will drop the first Wednesday of the month, so look for us. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? You looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man podcast. Join me, host Mike C., as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain App, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.